Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to see each of you. It's great to be in Franklin, Tennessee today. First time I've uh, been here in several years. I think it was about 15 years ago that I preached a meeting at the Main Street Church. And, of course, it's good to be with Brother and Sister Crozier and their three children. We have known them from just the very beginning of uh, Edwin's ministry and his work as a gospel preacher. Uh, Edwin and I have been very, very good friends for a long time. Uh, someone uh, earlier this morning said, you really trained Edwin well. Listen, Edwin and I worked together for seven and a half years. I taught him all that I knew in the first six months. For the next seven years, he taught me all that he knew. We've had a great work together, and uh, you all have a fine, fine young man working with you here. Now, someone also this morning said, uh, Brother Dawson, we've heard a lot about you. Well, don't believe everything you've heard, because I'm not nearly as good as some of my friends say. On the other hand, I'm not nearly as bad as some of my enemies say. But I'm glad to have the opportunity to study the Bible with you this morning and to talk about a, a work that all of us should be deeply involved in. I want to talk some about personal evangelism today. And yet the lesson is not going to be one that directly approaches the issue of personal evangelism. We're going to talk about a great man in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is the man that we're going to begin our study with this morning. Nehemiah is one of the great men of the Bible. He was a great leader and the builder. And he was the one who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Now, we might be surprised to learn that at the beginning of the story of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah lived about a thousand miles from the city of Jerusalem. If you would notice on this map here that... Jerusalem is way over here to the west at the Mediterranean Sea, and Nehemiah, according to Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, lived in Shushan, the citadel, that is the palace of the head of the Persian Empire, all the way over here to the east, a long, long way, some 1,000 miles, he lives from the city of Jerusalem. Now you wonder, how could a man a thousand miles away get anything done in the city of Jerusalem? Well, he heard the reports about the condition of the city. Let's begin our reading in chapter 1 and verse 1 and down to verse 3. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who were left from the captivity in the province there are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and I wept, and I mourn for many days. Here's a man, ladies and gentlemen, who is deeply saddened by the condition of his city, of the city of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah was not a builder by trade. In fact, he was the king's cupbearer. In spite of the fact that he lived far from Jerusalem, in spite of the fact that he was not a builder by trade, and in spite of the fact that he was not a free man, he yet became a legendary builder and is one of the great success stories of the Old Testament. The story begins in chapter 1. It continues in chapter 2 with him going to the Persian king and getting permission from the Persian king to go and rebuild the walls of the city. And Nehemiah went and rebuilt the walls of the city. And he did so in what must be regarded as record time. I'm looking at chapter 6 and verse 15. And here you see the completion of the walls of the city. And it says, So the wall was finished 
This is Nehemiah 6.15. The wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Yes, in spite of the fact that he lived far from Jerusalem, wasn't a builder, and was not a free man, he still completed that wall in only 52 days. What a remarkable story. Now, obviously, there is much more to the story than these handful of verses that we've read. Between chapters 1 and chapter 6 are all sorts of obstacles and problems and issues that have to be sorted out by Nehemiah. We're not going to focus on those obstructions to the construction, but whether we're going to focus on the man and the mindset that made him the master builder that he was. Now, why would we study stories like Nehemiah? Well, let me tell you why. We need to do it for the sake of our work, for the sake of saving souls. You see, we are the people of God. And as the people of God, we have a great task before us, and that is to communicate the gospel message to the whole world. And there are some principles that we can learn from this man that will help us in our task. I like Nehemiah. I like him because he's a man who started a great task and who finished the great task. He serves as an example to boost our spirits, motivating us to do better. Let me ask you a question. How many of us have said, and I put the emphasis on the word said, how many of, of us have said that we were going to do something great in God's kingdom? Oh, maybe we started out by saying, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. Or, I'm going to be a preacher. Or, I'd like to be an elder or a deacon in the church. Or, I'm going to get involved in evangelism in a way that I never had before. Or maybe you just said, I want to teach my neighbor. I'd like to get the courage up to invite my friend at work to come to services with me. There may be a hundred things that we've said we were going to do. And maybe with some of these things, maybe we made some progress, but with others we went nowhere. And, and what happened? What happened? Those are sad words when we talk about some dream or some goal that we might have had in the service of God, a dream or goal that we never reached. There was a time in our lives we look back and say, you know, I planned to do great things with my life, and now we only look back and think of what might have been. And the saddest things are not things that we would do for ourselves that we never accomplished, but the things that we would do for other people, the things that we do, we would do for our God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever planned to achieve a goal in God's service and didn't reach it? One man said this. He said, I dared. I dared to dream, but I never dared to do. And that's sad. The things that may have happened to us did not happen to Nehemiah. And that's what I want us to learn. We're going to see ten simple things, ten simple things that made Nehemiah the success that he was. We're going to see ten simple principles that we can apply in our lives that will benefit us in really any endeavor in God's service, but certainly will help us in regard to soul winning. I think Nehemiah is the kind of man who will motivate us to get off to a fresh start. If we listen to his story, his story will provoke us to have a right spirit. Folks, if we're going to win more souls for the Lord, we need something. And we need what this man, Nehemiah, had. Let me ask you, before we give you the first point, is there any, any work that we have to do that is more important than soul winning? Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30 says, He who wins souls is wise. It's one of our most basic functions as Christians. So, what are the ten things then that made Nehemiah successful? Well, first of all, here's a man who saw what was needed. He identified the problem and realized that something must be done about it. 
Remember, we just saw the verses in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. When Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. This man says, look, we've got a big problem. And even though he was a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, he says, something has got to be done about it. The situation at Jerusalem is one that could not be left alone. Now, there were plenty of people in Jerusalem who saw this terrible circumstance every day. And, and maybe after a while, they just got used to it. They said, well, it's a shame that the walls are broken down. It's a shame that the gates are burned with fire. And I hope somebody does something about it someday. But really, is it such a big deal? Maybe there were people in Jerusalem who thought that way every day, but not Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, something has got to be done. He sees the problem. He sees what is needed. Folks, let me tell you that with respect to saving souls, let's never become complacent. Complacent to the fact that the majority of people in, in our city here, in the city of Franklin, Tennessee, the majority of people are lost and are headed for an eternity without God. Don't become complacent about that. Don't be like the people of Jerusalem who just looked at the walls and said, well, too bad, you know, they're broken down. Wish somebody do something. Somebody has to act. Can you see that with respect to your work of evangelism, that there is a great need, and that means that then that there is a need to act, a need to act on your part? I want you to see a second thing about this man. This man, Nehemiah, was a man who was determined to act. There might have been other Jews uh, in the city of Jerusalem or beyond Jerusalem who may have bemoaned the conditions of the walls. Maybe they talked about what they would do someday, but Nehemiah was a man who was really going to do something about it. He had to do something, even if it meant that he would just go there and begin by laying one brick. He had to start somewhere. But you know where he started? The first place Nehemiah began was in prayer. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. And, and Nehemiah, after hearing this report from Jerusalem, Nehemiah 1, 4, it, he, it says, So it was, when I heard these things, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and I prayed before the God of heaven. That's the first thing he did. The second thing he did was to go to his king and ask permission to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 5. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Here was a man, ladies and gentlemen, who was determined to act. He really meant to do something about it. You know, sometimes we're like little children. Uh, sometimes we talk about what we're going to do in life, but we're more like children than adults. It's an eight-year-old boy who says, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. I'd like to be an astronaut. Maybe I want to be a race car driver. He says those things today, and by tomorrow he's forgotten those things. Folks, if we want to accomplish something for God, we've got to really mean it, and we've got to be determined to act. And that's the way it was with Nehemiah. He was serious about what he was going to do. You remember back in the, in the 1960s, there was a program on television called Route 66. I, I forget the two fellows' names, um, Chip and Buzz or something like that. But these fellows, they, they drove around the country in a brand new Corvette. They got a new Corvette every year. And they drove around the country and sort of had adventures, you know. They'd work a little while in this place and work a little while in that place. 
I was in the Air Force. I was in the service at that time. And I couldn't tell you, as we got close to the time for us, those and myself and those that I'd gone in the service with, as we got close to the time for us to get out of the service in the summer of 1965, you'd be amazed at how many fellows, when you talked about, well, what are you going to do when you get out? Oh, I'm going to be like Chip and Buzz, me and my buddy, you know, we're, we're going to get a new Corvette, we're going to drive around the country, and we're going to have adventures like them. You know, how many of those guys actually wound up doing that exactly this many? Not a single one. You see, it was all just talk. They weren't really determined to do something like that. They weren't serious about it. But I want to tell you that Nehemiah, in his work, he was serious. He said, I'm going to do something about this. And that's the way it's got to be with respect to personal evangelism. It can't just be talk. We've got to be serious about our work, ladies and gentlemen. So, Nehemiah was a man who formulated a plan. Nehemiah not only went to the king and got his permission, but he went to the city of Jerusalem and he quietly planned how to get the job done. Look with me to chapter 2, verse 11. He now has left Persia, left Shushan, the citadel, and has gone to Jerusalem. Verse 11, he says, So I came to Jerusalem. I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well at the refuge gate. And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and on to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up by night. I went up in the night by the valley, and I viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. Why is he, why is he going and scoping out the city? Why is he looking things over? Because this is part of his plan to get the job done. Let me tell you, folks, without a plan, work doesn't get done. People who don't plan are people who don't do. Have you ever realized that? If, if something is important in your life, then it's worth planning that thing. You already know that. I know that you know that. You ladies in here, when you were, when you were anticipating getting married, you planned your wedding. You meticulously and strategically arranged every detail. And, and, and every day, that, that last year before your wedding, the last six months, the last three months, the, the last 30 or 40 days before the wedding, you planned everything and you had all the bridesmaids picked out and you had the flowers picked out and the caterers picked out. Everything was down to the last detail because it was something that was important to you. It wasn't something haphazard where you said, well, I guess, you know, on December such and such date, I guess we'll just all kind of show up there and we'll all just kind of do whatever we're supposed to do and the wedding will take place. No, it was worth a plan, wasn't it? You men, when you bought your pickup truck, you know what you did. You looked carefully. You figured out what truck you wanted. You planned. You seen. You even juggled numbers and you arranged everything so you could make the payment and get just the truck you wanted. Why was that? It's because that truck was important to you. Why did the bride do all that planning? It's because the wedding was important to her. And we hope to the groom also. But you see, if something is really worth doing, you'll formulate a plan. And that's the way it is with personal evangelism. With personal evangelism, you've got to care. First of all, you've got to care about the cause of God. 
You've got to care about other people, about what happens to them. And really, you need even to care that your life means something, that your life amounts to something. There are so many people who go plodding through life, and I'm talking now about, about Christians, Christians who just kind of go plodding through life, and, and they never really think about what they're supposed to do, and they just go plodding through life, not really caring about what, whether their life amounts to anything or not. You've got to care that your life amounts to something. Listen, you can accomplish great things in God's service, and there are a few things that you can do that are the equal of personal evangelism. Someone says, oh, I'd love to be a preacher. I'd love to be an elder, a deacon. Well, more power to you. That's great. But I'll tell you something everyone can do. Everyone can be involved in personal evangelism. And when this whole world is on fire and we're standing before God on the judgment day, there will be few things that will be more important. In fact, anything more important than the fact that you have won souls for the Lord and you can say, Lord, here are these, that by your grace you've allowed me to teach the gospel and these people have believed the gospel and now these souls are presented to you for your glory and for your honor. And here are souls that might have been in a devil's hell forever and ever, that now will be in God's eternal paradise forever and ever. You've got to care that your life means something. Do you care what your life is about? Do you want to accomplish something important? Then you've got to develop a plan to get the work done. With no plan, you have no direction, and most people fail in that. But Nehemiah did more than that. Here's a man, ladies and gentlemen, who counted the cost that was the reason for going to the king. You see, you see, when he went to the king, that involved risk. Did you notice that? Look with me back at chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. That's the, that's the reason. Look here. When he goes to the king, chapter 2, verse 1, beginning, it says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And Nehemiah says, So I became dreadfully afraid. Yes, it involved risk for him to go before the king, to go before the king in this sad condition. Who knows what the king might do? The king might cast him into prison because he's come before his presence in this circumstance. The king might behead him. He could do anything. Nehemiah is not a free man. He was dreadfully afraid. But Nehemiah counted the cost. He was willing to take the risk of going before the king. Secondly, this is the reason he went and surveyed the city. We've already read from chapter 2 and, and verses 11 and following. He counted the cost. He saw what needed to be done. Folks, Nehemiah could not be like that man in Luke chapter 14. Turn to your Bible in Luke chapter 14 and, and verses 28 to 30. Jesus is teaching a lesson here on discipleship. And, and as an illustration in that lesson, he says this, Luke chapter 14, verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus said, Look, a man is going to build a tower. He's going to sit down first and he's going to count the cost and make sure he can do the thing. Nehemiah couldn't afford to be like this. And folks, we can't afford that either. Was Nehemiah willing to take some risk? Was he willing to bear the cost and time, materials, and energy? to leave the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, you know that he was willing to do that. 
And folks, let me tell you, if you're going to be the Lord's worker, if you're going to do the work of evangelism, it's going to cost you something. Don't fool yourself. Like Nehemiah, we need to face reality. You know, it's easy to take on a task in the kingdom of God without considering the hard work and the hours that's required to finish it. You take on a task and then you get to looking at the, at the job and you say, hey, this is going to cost me something. I didn't figure on that. And you get into the thing, you run out of zeal, you run out of energy, you run out of enthusiasm, and you leave work for God undone. And that's what we can't afford. Here's a man who counted the cost. But more than that, here's a man who also acted, and he acted without delay. Nehemiah prayed to God. He went to the king and asked permission. He got permission. He went to the city. He surveyed the city, and then he began to build. Look again at chapter 2 of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. After he surveyed the city, the text says, that the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the nobles, the priests, and the officials. I had not told them about the work. Then I said to them, verse 17, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. This is a man, ladies and gentlemen, Nehemiah is a man who acted and acted without delay. He had a sense of urgency. This is not something we're going to put off. It's not something that we're going to do ten years from now. It's something we're going to do right now, says Nehemiah. Sometimes... We get nothing done in our lives because we delay our plans. You see, we get a limited satisfaction out of saying, someday I'll do this. Someday I'll be a, a teacher of God's Word. Someday I'll, I'll speak to my neighbor. Someday I'll invite those folks to church. Someday I'll set up a Bible study. You see, it makes us feel better to say someday because it says I have good intentions and so that salves my conscience for today. But good intentions don't count in life. Successful people develop a do-it-now habit. Look in your Bible, Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. It's the case of the Apostle Paul. Paul is talking about his life in general and his service unto God and the things that he was doing in God's service. And I want you to see what he says about himself. In Philippians 3, 13, Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do... Forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says this one thing I do. Paul was a man who developed a do-it-now habit. If something needs to be done, if, if, if something urgent and pressing is before me, then I need to act and I need to act without delay. Paul didn't say, someday I'm going to get around to teaching the Gentiles. Someday I'm going to go on one of those missionary journeys, you know. Someday I'm going to learn more. Someday I'm going to teach more. No, Paul acted right now. And that's the way Nehemiah was. Nehemiah and Paul would have gotten along well together because they were both men of action. And folks, if we're going to do personal evangelism, we're going to have to be people of action. But notice this about Nehemiah. Here's a man who was not distracted. Now, were there any things that might have distracted this man from rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem? 
Well, of course they were. The devil will always see that there, see to it that there are distractions, things that will turn us away. Return again to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Remember those men of the city now? Nehemiah has spoken to them, and they said, Let us rise up and build. They set their hands to the good work. But verse 19 begins with the word, But, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and they despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Here you see a distraction right off. Opposition to the work. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1, beginning. Chapter 6, verse 1, down to verse 4. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, there's always going to be enemies to the work of God, ladies and gentlemen, get used to it. It was that way 2,500 years ago, it's that way today. When the enemies heard that we rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I've not yet hung the doors at the gate, that Sandalit and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together uh, among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. See, here's a man trying to distract them from the work. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. I am not coming down. I am doing a great work. I will not stop the work to come to you. Can enemies distract us? You know that they can. But more often than not, we just get our own lives so cluttered up with many, so many things that we provide our own distractions. And as a result, our lives are often way out of balance. And there's very little time given to spiritual things. It's not necessarily the enemy that's distracting us. We're distracting ourselves by having ourselves involved in so many things. Let me ask you, is there a project at your home that is lying there and things? Maybe this happened to you this fall, or maybe it was last fall, or maybe it was a couple of years ago. It was a Saturday morning. It was 10 o'clock. You had been to the Home Depot store. You got your paint. You were going to paint that garage. You know, it had been needing paint for two or three years. And this is a Saturday. You're going to paint that garage. Now, this afternoon at 3 o'clock, the big game comes on. It's Tennessee versus, who was it, Auburn? Was that who they played? Did Tennessee ever play Auburn? Yeah, that, that sounds like a good game, doesn't it? Did Tennessee beat Auburn this year? Who won? It, Ron, who won? Auburn won. It was a sad day for Tennessee fans. But, well, maybe this happened a couple of years ago when Tennessee beat Auburn. But anyway, here was the deal. You, you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock. You, you've got your paint stirred. Everything's out there. You, you, you started going down one side of the barn. You, you, you got about four or five feet of it painted. And your wife says, honey, you got a phone call. And you, you go take the phone call. And, and your, your, friend, your friend says, did you see that? See what? Our, our guy took that opening kickoff and run it down to the one-yard line, ran out of bounds at the one. There, where Tennessee's just about to score. You say, what are you talking about? The game doesn't come on the three. No, it's on at 11. And so what do you do? You say, well, i got to at least watch the score. <laughs> and so you lay your brush and paint down, and you think, I'll get back to it at halftime. At halftime... Your team is behind. Tennessee's behind 14 to 13. And, well, you go out there and you think, you know, I've got to watch the rest of this game. So you take the brushes and you lay them in the garage and say, as soon as the game's over, what happened? What happened? You see, 
you got distracted from your work. And a few weeks later, there's that hard paintbrush that now is of no value. You've got to go back to Home Depot and buy another one. There's that hard paintbrush and you never got the garage painted because you got distracted. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what happens in our work for God. We have good intentions. Maybe we even get started at some point, but like the man painting the garage, we get distracted and we don't get the job done. Let me tell you that what happens in home improvement also happens in spiritual improvement. What happens in your work at the house happens in your work for the cause of God. Don't be distracted. That's what Nehemiah did not allow to happen. But I want you to see another point about this man. Here's a man who maintained his courage. You know, the enemies didn't just say, come down, we want to talk to you. They mocked Nehemiah. They made fun of him. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Nehemiah, beginning at verse 1 and down to verse 3. It, it says, so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubble stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on that wall, he will break down their stone wall. These Jews aren't smart enough to get the job done. They're not building the wall right. Everything that they're doing is wrong. I want to tell you that enemies mock Nehemiah. But he persisted with courage. And I have to tell you that any work that you do for God, it's easy to become discouraged, especially in the face of mockers. Or maybe it's the fact that we give up. We give up because of our own self-doubt. Maybe other people throw cold water on our plans. Maybe we're trying to teach somebody, and somebody says, you teach? You can't teach anybody. You don't even know enough yourself. What do you think you're doing trying to set up a Bible study? Or maybe you've got the Bible study set up and maybe someone at work says, why, that guy, he's from the Church of Christ. What's he think he's going to do? How's he going to help anybody? And people make fun of you. Make fun of your Bible knowledge. Make fun of what you believe. They throw cold water on you. I'll tell you what we need, folks, is the courage of Nehemiah, the dogged determination that says, I will not quit. That's what this man had. He's a man who starts a project and he finishes the project. Have you ever done any long-distance running? Brother Edwin here is becoming more and more of a runner all the time, and I appreciate that. I got him started in running several years ago, and he's kind of been off and on, but he's doing better. I've been running for 25 years. I ran the Houston Marathon in 1980 and 81. You may have, you may have seen me on television, on ESPN. I finished just ahead of the little old ladies in their wheelchairs. But you know what it takes to, you know what it takes to finish a marathon? It takes a determination that says, no matter what happens, I will not quit. There's a, a thing called the wall at 20 miles, 20 to 22 miles, where your body simply says, I'm through, I'm finished, I, I'm not going to go any further. But your mind says, no, you're not finished. You're going to take on these last four miles, last five miles, six miles, however much there is to go. You do not give yourself the option to quit. That's what's needed in our work in God's service, in evangelism. In anything that we're doing for God, we don't give ourselves the option to quit. I, I, I saw the Houston Marathon for the first time in 1979. My son and I drove over there just to watch the race. There were two, three, four thousand runners in the race. 
and, and I heard some of the runners before the race talking, you know, I'm not feeling real strong today. Uh, I may quit at the halfway part if I'm not feeling good. You see, the way the marathon was run, it started in downtown Houston, ran out to the West Loop and back, and then a second time. You ran the same course twice, got your 26 miles. And you know what I saw is that the people who said, I might quit at the halfway point, they did. If you give yourself the option to quit, you probably will. And so, with respect to personal work or any important work for God, let us never give ourselves an option to quit or to drop out. We need to press on with dogged determination that says, I am going to go on to the finish line. But I'm, I want you to notice this about this man, Nehemiah. Here's a man who's not afraid to try. Was it possible for him to fail? Sure, it was possible for him to fail, but he wasn't deterred by that. The very fact that he went and built the wall shows that he wasn't afraid to try. Fear of failure can be so powerful in our lives. Fear is the great immobilizer. It causes us to freeze up. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 25, remember the, the story there about the five-talent man, two-talent man, one-talent man? Five-talent man gained five more, the two-talent man two more. But the one-talent man, when the master returned, he said, Here, here's what you gave me, the one. I was afraid, and I went and hid what you gave me in the earth. Here, take back what you've given me. Fear immobilized this man. Someone says, but what if we fail? What if, we, what if we're rejected? What if we don't do a good job? What if we fail? What, what are we going to do? Folks, I will tell you this, that we are much better off to try something great and fail than to try nothing and succeed. Possibly the number one deterrent that keeps us from speaking to, to, to other people about the Lord is our fear. Fear of rejection, fear of failure. How do we overcome that? I'm going to show you in just a moment as we close the lesson. I've got two more points to make. One of them is this. That here's a man who knew the value of teamwork. Could Nehemiah rebuild this wall of Jerusalem by himself? Oh, maybe he could if you gave him a hundred years, but he didn't have a hundred years. He built it in 52 days, and you know how he did it? He did it by teamwork. The entire third chapter, the entire third chapter of the book of Nehemiah is about teamwork. It's about how all the people of Jerusalem pitched in together and did the work together. Each one did their own part, and yet even in that third chapter, there is an exception. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, Next to them the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Some of these out of the group called the Tekoites, some of this clan, the Tekoites, worked hard, but others did not work hard. The fact that some didn't cooperate, didn't keep the others from working. You know, you, you may say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing evangelism in 2004. I'm going to be a better worker than I've ever been before. And I hope everybody else does it too. Well, I hope that's so. But what if they don't? What if others don't cooperate? What if they just sit back on their hunches and say, well, I'm not going to do it? That might be discouraging, but you have to keep on. Keep on working. Don't, don't allow the fact that some may not cooperate, don't allow that to defeat and to discourage you. In your congregation, you need to see yourself as a team of workers and cooperate with one another, each person doing what he can to help reach the goal of saving souls. Don't leave it up to a few. But if you are that few, don't quit. Let me give you one last thing. And this final point, to me, maybe the most important point that we see in the whole study, 
And that is, Nehemiah was a man who remembered God throughout the whole ordeal. This is how we overcome fear. Remember that God is on our side and that God is our helper. This is how we maintain our courage. This is how we avoid the distractions. And this is how we deal with every hindrance. We remember God from beginning to end. You know that a casual reading of the book of Nehemiah will show Nehemiah's constant dependence upon God. What's the first thing he did? We saw it back in verse number 4. First thing he did when he heard the condition of the walls of the city... Look at it and see. It says who it was. This is chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, when I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, I was fasting and I was praying before the God of heaven. This man prayed. And look at his prayer. Verse 5, he continues. And he said, I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of this servant which I pray before you day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter, if you are unfaithful rather, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, Nehemiah says, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attended to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And so Nehemiah is going to go before the king, and he's going to ask the king's permission. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Verse 4 of chapter 2. This is after Nehemiah has said that the gates of my father's city are burned with fire. And the king said to me, What do you request? And the text says, So I prayed to the Lord God of heaven. Here's a man who prays again. And, and what happened when these people came and mocked him? When they, when they mocked Nehemiah. Look at chapter 4 and verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. After the mockery of Ammonite, uh, of Tobiah the Ammonite, he, he turned to God and said, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. He prays to God. Look at verse 9. Here, there's a conspiracy to come and attack Jerusalem and, and to create confusion in the city. And, and in verse 9, Nehemiah says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. Here's a man who is constantly praying to God. That's his dependence. Uh, it's upon God. And, and how does he speak about his work? Well, just look at some of the things that happen. Look at chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He talks about a letter that the king gave him to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. This is verse 8. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 8. A letter was given by Artaxerxes to him to take to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. He must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. What is it that made me and my successful? He says God's hand was upon me. Look at chapter 2, verse 18 when he's talked to the people of the city about rebuilding the city. 
In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. God is behind us, he says. See, that's why he had courage. That's why he wasn't distracted. Look at chapter 2 and verse 20. When, 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 uh, the Arab heard and they're laughing and, rebe- laughing and accusing them of rebellion. In verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, I answered them, and I said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. This is about God from beginning to end. And I just want to remind you of what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it's verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, It was I who planted Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. And so, who does the glory belong to? It doesn't belong to Paul or to Apollos. It belongs to God. God was behind the work of evangelism. Just like God was behind the work of rebuilding the walls. This means that our trust should be in God and not in ourselves. And if Nehemiah doesn't have God's help in this thing, he's not going to get the job done. His trust is in God from beginning to end. And I've only read you a few of the verses that indicate that. Almost every chapter is indicative of that. Ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of the lesson. And may I say to you at this point that this lesson has not been about what to do, but about the mindset that we need in order to do. We need to have these ten points in our lives to do the work of evangelism. In fact, these are success principles that are needed in virtually every endeavor in life. We need to have these principles in our lives. And you look at almost any endeavor that you do, you need these things. And it's, you know what? Listen carefully. These things are true even in becoming a Christian. Maybe there's someone here this morning that is not yet a Christian. Just think about these things. Do you see what is needed? Do you realize that you need to obey the gospel? Do you see the problem that you have if you haven't obeyed the gospel? Do you see that you're headed for eternity without God? You need to see that. You need to be determined to act. And you need to formulate a plan. Now, that doesn't mean you come up with your own way of being saved, but you need to formulate a plan to change your life because even today, after you're baptized this morning, you need to look at your life and say, now there are things I need to change in my life, and here's how I'm going to do it. Here's what I'm going to work on, and here's how I'm going to study. Here's how I'm, who I'm going to get to help me. Yes, you need to formulate a plan. You need to count the cost of discipleship. That verse we saw a few moments ago in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus talked about the builder who counted the cost. That's a, that's a text about discipleship. You count the cost as you become a Christian. You need to ask and ask without delay. The Bible never tells us, you know, become a Christian next week, become a Christian next month. The Bible teaches us that today is the day of salvation. You need to ask and you need not to be distracted. Don't allow people to cause you to turn aside to the right hand or to the left away from God. You need to maintain your courage and don't be afraid to try. You know what? Hell is going to be full of people who were afraid to become Christians. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 talks about the lake of fire, the unbelievers, and the fearful are there. Those who were afraid to try. You need to recognize the value of teamwork, that becoming a Christian. You don't become a Christian all by yourself, but you become a Christian with other people. That is, you serve God with other people, and they help you on the way to heaven. And then you need to remember God throughout because God is your help. He's your strength. He's the author and finisher of salvation. He's the one who begins you on the road. He's the one who takes you to the end. If you'll trust in Him, follow Him to the finish line, do His will. 
Maybe there's someone here today that says, that's what I need to do, and I'm ready to act today. If so, you come right now and you obey the Lord. Come now as we stand and as we sing.